For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Our Father, we thank you for the foolishness of preaching, for the message that the world may mock and make fun of, but it is your message, it is your truth, and someday what men do with Christ, you will determine what you will do with them. Father, now you've called us to minister in this exciting age in human history. We are not here by accident. We thank you that you are on your throne this morning, that you rule in the heavens above. You told us there would come a time when there would be no revival, that men's hearts would grow cold, that lawlessness will increase. All we know what to do is to obey your word and to be faithful. So help us in this week as our members reach out and invite their friends. We ask that you would sovereignly and providentially put in our paths people who are open and searching and looking. And as we more fully reopen next week, may your hand of blessing and protection be over this fellowship of believers. We are here today to hear from heaven, and we know your word contains your will. So we humbly bow before it. We tremble at your word like the psalmist. I pray that you would help me, that you would fill me and anoint me, that when this message is heard today or later on through broadcasts, that it would be blessed of you and by the Spirit of God to grow us deeper in our love for Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn to the epistle of James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this marvelous letter. It's just 108 verses, and some of you have been reading it every day since we started last January, and it is beginning to imprint in your soul. That's what it does when you read and reread a book. Some of you are doing it once a week, and that's fantastic. Now, we've learned that James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He grew up in the family that Jesus grew up in. Obviously, Jesus did not have a human father, but they had the same mother, and so he was his half-brother. And he is a man who, like Christ, wants to give instruction, but he wants to take instruction and put it into practice. The writer of the Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So God gave His Word not to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives, not to make us smarter sinners but to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's revelation, when it's read and when it's studied and put into practice, changes the life from the inside out. And he has spoken clearly and certainly has not stuttered. Now, if you've been with us, you know that this is a book that is absolutely packed and overflowing with application. 
And before I read our passage for this morning, we're in James 4. Let me set the context of our passage, the immediate context. In the fourth chapter, he deals with three difficult issues in the Christian community. There were problems in James's day, and there are problems in our day. In verses 1 through 10, he deals with the problem of worldliness. Christians who, in some respects, were worldly. God hasn't called you to be worldly. He's called you to be holy. And some of the people in this fellowship were living like the lost people of this world, and that, as the opening verse of chapter 4 indicates, they were involved in quarrels and conflicts. We saw that the word for quarrels is the word polemis, comes giving us directly our word polemic. A polemic is an argument, a verbal attack. And so there were these uh, wars, so to speak, that were unfolding in the church, quarrels. Then he uses a different word, conflicts, that is a word that was used in the first century for a skirmish, a battle within a larger war. So taking these two words together, there was outbursts of anger and division, and there was this ongoing battle, as it were, conflicts and quarrels. And notice the text says, within their members. He's not talking about the folks out there. He's talking about the folks in here. And God hasn't called us to live like the world. He's called us to be distinctively different. So that's the first problem, the problem of worldliness. Then in verses 11 and 12, if you were here with us last time, he deals with the problem of judging the problem of criticism, the problem of slandering or speaking unfairly about a brother or sister in the Lord. And you might expect that. There is always a spirit of judgment when there's quarrels and conflicts within the fellowship. One feeds the other. Now, the third problem is the one that we come to today, and it's found in verses 13 through 17, and it is the problem of perspective, the problem of knowing and doing the will of God. And so James asks and answers the question, how can the person who's been saved, redeemed, who has his name written in the Lamb's book of life, who's headed for heaven, how does he invest his life while here on earth properly? And so the title of this sermon is Vapor Theology, because James is going to underscore that our life is like a vapor. Yet the way you invest your vapor will determine what you are like for all of eternity. All right, James 4, we want to begin reading in verse 13, where we left off last time. Follow along in your Bible. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin." What a chapter. It begins talking about war with God, and it ends unfolding the will of God. And the two subjects are intertwined together because a Christian typically who is out of the will of God is out of God's will because he's at war with other believers. And so Satan 
wants you to be divided against your brother. And Paul says your real enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not the brother or sister, your wife, your husband. The real enemy are powers and principalities that are at work. And so if you think about it, the will of God is often lost by people who are troublemakers within the church or people who are just plain out of fellowship with God. And there are illustrations all the way through Scripture. Think about Lot. He moved to Sodom. He started on the edge of the city. By the time he was done, he was on the city council, so to speak. He went to a place he should have never have gone, a place covered over in sin, in immorality, in perversion. And as a result, he got his family into deep trouble. Think about King David. He got out of fellowship with God, should have been out in the battle. Instead, he was at home, and he saw a beautiful Bathsheba, and he ended up committing adultery. And that one decision created problems for the rest of his life. Think about Jonah. He steps out of the will of God. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. The Ninevites, they're Israel's enemies. We don't want to preach the gospel to the Ninevites go to Nineveh. So what does he do? He goes in the opposite direction. And of course, the decision that he makes almost results in a whole group of sailors drowning because of his rebellion. So God has a will for your life. God has a broad will, a general will, but God also has a very specific will. Paul says you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Salvation is God's gift, not as a result of works, so no one can boast or brag. But then he says in the next verse, for we are his workmanship. The word workmanship is the Greek word poema. We get our English word poetry. It's a beautiful word picture. We're God's poetry created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know that God has a plan, a tailored plan, as it relates to your specific life? In describing the will of God, whether it's general or specific, Paul says it is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But unfortunately, too many Christians look at the will of God sometimes as a bitter medicine and not coming really from the heart of a loving God. I love Psalm 3311. It says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. So the will of God comes from the heart of God. It's not something that is to be ignored or despised, but but something that is to be prayerfully obeyed and embraced because it comes from his loving heart. And so in these five verses of Scripture, we basically have three attitudes towards the will of God. He deals with two incorrect attitudes in verses 13 and 14, and then again in verses 16 and 17, and then sandwiched between the two is the correct attitude that we should have towards God's will. If you're online, there's a note-taking outline you can print out. There's one in your bulletin if you're here for the first time. We want to begin by examining the foolishness of ignoring God's will, the foolishness of ignoring God's will. James begins by telling us of a first-century wheeler-dealer of sorts, here in verse 13, of a shrewd businessman who had some very astute plans. Now, in the eyes of the world, this businessman would have been considered a great success. 
but in God's eyes, he was a successful failure. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Have you ever heard that statement before? Of course you have. That's the statement of the marketplace. What are you going to do tomorrow? Well, we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to go to Atlanta. And after Atlanta, we're going to go to New York and then maybe Chicago. And we are going to engage in business deals. We'll be there for so long. And certainly, we're going to make some serious money. We're going to pull this off. And James says, hold it. Wait a minute. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So James reveals for us the foolishness of ignoring the will of God. And there are two errors in this man's thinking that uh, he just seems to ignore what God wants for him. He underscores that he has a bad attitude, the wrong attitude, and he has a bad or wrong assumption. His attitude is that he's self-sufficient. He's not planning with God. He's planning independently of God. And so his travel plans are to go to the next city. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. He didn't say, Lord, where do you want me to go? He took out his map, laid it out. He thought, this is a booming area. This is where we need to go. This is where we need to make a profit. In fact, the word here for you who say, it's one word in Greek. It refers to a consistent, ongoing, well-thought-through, reasoning kind of plan. In other words, this is not just spur of the moment. He had been thinking about this for some time. This is not haphazard and spontaneous. This is a well-thought-through, reasoned plan, but independent of God. Now, if you've read any of the historians, both Jewish and Gentile from the first century, the Jewish people were known as great traders. They had an ability to make money, and they still do. And it is not by accident. God has blessed the Jewish people, even Jewish unbelievers. Why? Because He is going to complete human history through the nation of Israel. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son. Israel is back in the land. Yes, there's a skirmish going on there. They come and go all the time, but Israel cannot be destroyed. They are back in the land, and God is going to complete His will and His purpose for the ages through that. And so in the first century, they were known as great traders. In fact, cities were being founded. It was a growing economic time. And if you were Jewish and you wanted to bring your business to a particular city, history records that citizenship was free. Why? Because you would come and help prosper our town. You would make money. Now, remember whom James is addressing. He's addressing Jewish Christians, what today we would call a completed Jew. It's not an oxymoron to say that someone is a Jewish Christian. When you are a Jew and believe in Jesus as Messiah, you don't lose your Jewishness. Jewishness is an ethnicity. Jews aren't converted Jews. They're not converted Jews. Once a Jew, always a Jew. Now, someone could be a drunk who's converted from alcohol, or someone could be a Buddhist who's converted from Buddhism to Christianity. 
But a Jew is not converted from his Jewishness because it's an ethnicity. It means you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jewishness, of course, biblically speaking, was determined by the Father. So here is these Jewish believers, as the opening verse of the epistle indicates, who were great businessmen, and they saw an opportunity, and they are headed. And again, James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there. He took out his calendar, and he thought, this is what I'm going to do. He hasn't prayed about how he's going to use the 365 days God has given him in a year. He is going to do as he sees fit. He's self-confident about the place. He's self-confident about the period of time. And he's self-confident about the procedure and the profit that's going to come. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there. Engage in business and make a profit. So he reasons, I'm going to engage in business. And probably he was a merchant of sorts. How do I know? Well, one, history records, that's what the Jews were known for. Two, that was the principal business in the first century. And three, the word for business is the Greek word. It almost sounds like our English word emporium. It comes directly from Greek into English as emporium. And an emporium, of course, was a center of trade. And so they were known for buying and selling and conducting business. And with a sense of confidence, he says, I'm going to make a profit. He predicted his profit. He boasted about his profit. He's not praying about it. He just believes it is going to happen. And he is an illustration of a man who's driven by earthly profits and not eternal treasure. Now, don't forget, James 1.1, the opening verse, we spent one sermon on one verse, was so critical to the foundational truths that we've been studying in this book. He's writing to the diaspora, to those Jews who've been spread like seeds, scattered. And these are congregations of Jews across Israel, across the section of the world to whom ministry is being done. Now, think with me for just a moment. Let me bring it down to where we live. You see, well, I'm not a businessman. I don't travel to this city or that city. I, I just live here in our town, and that's about the full size of it. Well, let me bring it down to where you sleep, because he's not just talking about businessmen. He's talking about the principle of living independently of God, and he's using the businessman as an illustration. He can be speaking this morning about your family, about your marriage, about your education, about your leisure. So what was this past week like? How did you live it out? Did you live it out prayerfully? planning with the Lord, engaging your day with Him? Did you start the day with Him and say, Lord, this is, this is what I have planned today, and I want your best, and if you want to change my plans, or, but I certainly don't want to live out these plans independently of you. I want to live out these plans in dependence upon you. We're to practice the presence of God. There was a book written that by that title, Practicing the Presence of God. It was a terrible book by Charles Sheldon. The title was fantastic. He was an apostate. He was a liberal. He didn't believe in the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ. But nonetheless, he wrote Practicing the Presence of God. And based on that book, years ago, people used to wear these little bracelets, W. W, uh, what would Jesus do? WWJD. What would Jesus do? It was based on that book. But the concept was a good concept. We are to practice 
the presence of God. We are to walk closely with him each and every day, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our place of work, in our neighborhood. So when the phone rings unexpectedly and you have a a plan that you have determined to carry out, can God change that plan? Can he redirect your steps when you encounter such changes? See, a lot of us live like practical atheists. We're not living in dependence upon the Lord. And James is simply saying to this guy who is so confident, I'm going to such and such a city. I'm going to spend so much time there. I'm going to engage in such and such a trade, and I'm going to make money. And he's asking, where is God in all of this? Are you living for God's glory, for God's kingdom, for God's will? for things that really matter, that things that are beyond this life. Now, understand, God's not against planning. You should plan. God's not even against the concept, I'm planning to go to such and such a city. He's not against wise planning. What He is against is planning that's done without Him. God teaches the concept that we should plan. In Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon said this, "'Go to the Anno sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which, having no chief, Officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision and the harvest. That involves planning, such that in seasons of plenty, instead of spending it all, you lay some aside for seasons of need. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is, but be filled with the Spirit. And he prefaces that by saying, Make the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. God wants you and I to make the most of our time because we live in an evil and fallen world. Jesus underscored the need to plan and that great parable of what it means to be a disciple. In Luke 14, he made this statement. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So neither James nor Jesus nor Solomon were against planning They were against planning without God. They were not against anticipating the future, but they were against anticipating the future in a secular way like a practical atheist doing it without the living God. And we as Christians can live and plan and act. Remember who the audience is here. He's talking to saved, born-again people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life who are headed for heaven And sometimes we just ask God to to bless our plans ever before we ask God to reveal His plan. And it's not our life to plan. We affirm that we've been bought with a price that we're not our own, and we are to glorify God in our body. However, this man, he, he also made a wrong assumption. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Two truths you can absolutely count on concerning the future. One is that only God knows the future. The other is that we don't. Tomorrow's circumstances are uncertain. I mean, before the day is over, you could get a phone call, and everything changes. All of a sudden, there is the death of a spouse, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job. All kinds of things that you didn't count on come down the pike. And God wants us to 
be careful. I mean, think about the people this morning as I'm preaching who are in the emergency room. They didn't wake up this morning and say, I think we'll go to the emergency room so we can sit there for six hours and be ignored. No, not at all. Just ha- something happened. A crisis suddenly came, and they had no choice. And that's the truth that James wants us to get a hold of here. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. In fact, he says you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Your life, when compared to eternity, is like steam coming out of a kettle, appears for a moment and then is gone. The Phillips translation, a paraphrase, one of the first ones ever done in the 1950s in England, J.B. Phillips rendered this verse, what after all is your life? It's like a puff of smoke visible for a little while and then dissolving into thin air. You and I sit here this morning, we hear this verse, and all of us are one heartbeat away from eternity. You're healthy, you're young, you're vibrant, but you have no promise of tomorrow. Sometimes the old man, the old woman, all of a sudden gives out and they die, but sometimes it's a little child who lays down his or her toys and suddenly is gone. I mean, how many of you are planning to die in this calendar year? Probably none of us. I'm not dying this year. How about next? Certainly not next year. How about the next year? I don't think so. But if this is a typical year, I'll do a dozen funerals for people who weren't planning to die. One of those days, it will be your funeral. One of those days, it will be mine. But some of us, we have it all figured out. We think, oh, I know how I'm going to die. I'm, you know, I'll live till I'm 95. I'll go to the doctor one day, and he'll say, you know, I think this is it for you. So you'll go home, and you'll make sure the insurance papers are in order, and the will says what you want it to say, and then you'll call in your children and grandchildren and give them a final goodbye and kiss and pull up the covers over your head and die. <laughs> but that's not how it works. Death, for the most part, is unexpected. It comes in a moment. I bring this watch into the pulpit every week because I don't want to bring in my cell phone. But I can hear it ticking. And with every tick, on average, two people die. 120 a minute, 7,200 an hour, 173,000 a day, 6.3, million a year. And one of those ticks is yours or mine. And James is simply saying, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. This life is short. And I should say by way of parenthesis while we're at it, this would be a good reminder to say to some of us listening, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. I was witnessing to a man, and I said, look, you may not be alive next week. Oh, he didn't think that. See, we don't have the promise that we'll be alive tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know, the Scripture says, what a day may bring. In Psalm 102, 11, it describes our life like withering grass. And then King David uses the exact identical metaphor that James is using in Psalm 39 and verse 5. He says, your life is like a mere breath. The chronicler, when he describes King David, who lived to the age of 70, he describes him as saying, our days are like a shadow 
Job says, your, your days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle. They're very quick. Listen to what Moses said in Psalm 90. You turn, he's speaking to the Lord. He says, you turn back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. That's just the shortness of life. Isaiah uses the imagery of a flower that sprouts. That flesh, fresh flower someone gave you yesterday. And by this afternoon it will be wilted. How arrogant it is to say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James is reminding us that that's not an assumption you can make. Why? Because you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. He reminds us that your life is like a vapor. The word for vapor is the word that's translated else in the New Testament for breath. It's used to describe steam in Koine Greek. If you take a pot and you boil it, it's used to describe steam. The CBS translation renders it smoke. Um, the LEB puts it smoky vapor. The Net Bible, some of you use, it renders it a puff of smoke. The English Standard Version puts it as a mist. And another translation says, like a morning fog. By the way, this is a verse annihilationists use to say that the wicked do not continue after they die. Annihilationism is the doctrine that says that when a wicked person, when an unbeliever dies, he doesn't exist in hell for all of eternity, but he is like the vapor that appears and then he's annihilated, he's burned up, he's consumed. And that doctrine became popular, A, through Seventh-day Adventists, and B, through Jehovah's Witness, because they both came out of the same group. But it's heretical. The same word that is used to describe eternal life, ionion, is the same Greek word that's used to describe eternal death, and it's the same word that's used to describe the eternal God. To say that God is not eternal would be to say that heaven is not eternal would be to say that hell is not eternal. But no. In fact, the first word here, if you look at the word appears and then the word vanishes, it's the identical word in Greek with the change of a single letter, the alpha. You know, there's the word millennium. We speak of the millennial reign of Christ that he'll rule for a thousand years. And then we have a group of people today who are amillennialists. They say the church has replaced Israel, that God's done with the Jewish people replacement theology. It's bad theology, but it's become very popular in America. And I'm not surprised as we move here into the end of the age because the Scripture teaches that there is going to be a downgrade towards the way people view the Jew. All the nations of the world, even America someday, will go against Israel. The Scripture is plain on that. So there's the word millennium, and then you put the alpha from it, a millennium, meaning there is no millennium. Well, there's a word here for appears, and there's the word for vanishes, and the difference is the letter alpha, the alpha prefix. And James is just saying we appear for a moment, and then we disappear. We're visible, 
and then we're invisible, but it doesn't mean we cease to exist. Just like vapor that changes form, it doesn't cease to exist. It goes on, but it looks differently. You no longer see it. And his point is, is that you need to plan in light of the shortness of life, the brevity of life, and how unpredictable life can be. Even as I preach, I need to be preaching as a dying man to dying men. This may be the last sermon I will ever preach. And this may be the last sermon you will ever hear. I remember preaching in my father-in-law's church, and he asked me to come and do a revival. And I preached that Sunday morning, and a gentleman came up to me after. His name was Alton. He said, Pastor Carl, that was just great. That just spoke to my heart. I can't wait till tonight. I'll see you tonight. He went home that afternoon, fell ill, didn't come home, and by Wednesday he was dead. Look, life is short. It is but a vapor that appears for a moment. We think that we are in the land of the living, headed to the land of the dying. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible teaches that we are in the land of the dying, and we are headed towards the land of the living, where life will never, ever, ever, ever end, either in heaven or in hell. And so life may seem long to you, but it's just a puff of smoke that appears for a moment and then is gone. Now, wonder, Moses, in that same great psalm that I read, continued in Psalm 90 and verse 12 with these words. So teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. What a prayer. Teach us to number our days. Now, we tend to count our years, don't we, at our annual birthdays? But Moses says, teach us to number our days. And so both James and Moses are underscoring how short life is. Let's think about it very practically here for just a moment. Let's number our days for a moment. Suppose Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime and you live to the age of 77. Some of you are already near there. But suppose you live to the age of 77. If that's true, how many days do you have left? Well, if you're 15 years old and listening to me today, you have 22,630 days. I calculated it this week. You say, that sounds like a long time. Well, let me put it into months. If you're 15, you have 74, 744 months left to live if you live to your 77. If you're 25 years old, you have 624 months left to live. If you're 35 years old, you have 504 months to live. If you're 45 years old, you have 384 months left to live. If you're 55 years old, you have 264 months to live. If you are 65 years old, you have 144 months left. If you're 75 years old, you have 24 months left. If you're 80 years old, well, just smile because you've beat the average, all right? So teach us. You say, I'm going to live to 90. I don't do many funerals of people over 80. I've done some 500 funerals in the last 40-plus years. And very few of people over 80, very few over 90, as a general rule, what Moses said, 70 years if due to strength, 80. So teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. What kind of presentation are you giving to God this morning? 
We count our years. We need to consider the brevity of life and count our days. 365 days makes a year. And so how are we investing them? How are we spending our lives? Are we wasting them or are we investing them? See, before you know it, the days turn into decades, and you wake up and you said, what happened to life? I'm an old man. So don't waste your life. Make sure your vapor theology is sound. So that's the foolishness of ignoring God's will. Secondly, this morning, I want us to consider the wisdom of obeying God's will. So he deals with two negative aspects of God's will, and sandwiched between here is the wisdom of obeying God's will. Look now at verse 15, and I want you to notice the prayerful attitude that the believer is to have. Instead, he said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, James is not saying that every time you state your plans about the future, you need to preface it with, uh, if the Lord wills or Lord willing at the beginning of every sentence. Now, you might do that on occasion, but that's not his point. It's not so much a statement on our lips as it is an attitude that is to be in our hearts. And very often when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, who gave us a number of New Testament books, you see the Spirit in him. He models what James speaks of. For instance, in Acts 18, he is speaking to the church at Ephesus, but taking leave to them and saying, I will return to you again if the Lord wills. And so he sets sail from Ephesus. Or in uh, Romans chapter 1, when he writes the church at Rome, he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He asks in the same book, the church at Rome, to pray for him, so that I may come to you, enjoy by the will of God, and find refreshing rest in your company. Or he says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and then in the 16th chapter, he closes off the letter, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So Paul was a man who had a certain sensitivity to knowing and doing the will of God. And what a contrast is found between the man who ignores God's will in verse 13 and the man who is prayerfully dependent on God's will in verse 15. And by the way, while we're on the subject of the will of God, let me say that the will of God is not difficult to discover. As long as we are willing to obey that which we know, God will show us that which we do not know. Jesus underscored that principle in John 7, 17. There were some searching people to whom he was encountering on this particular day. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. In other words, Jesus is saying when you obey what you do know, God will show you that which you do not know because obedience is the conduit to the specific tailored will of God as it relates to your life. Now, the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. And so you begin by obeying the general will of God. And when you obey the general will of God, God unfolds the specific will of God. It's like walking in a cave with a headlamp. You can't see 100 yards in front of you. You can only see about 10 yards. 
But when you walk that 10 yards, you can see another 10 yards and another 10 yards. And that's typically how God unfolds his will, one step at a time. That's why when someone comes to faith in Christ, one of the first things I immediately ask them to do is to consider being baptized. Why? Because Christ told me that's part of the Great Commission. I'm going to ask them to be baptized, believe and then be baptized. And it's for their good because when they obey what they know, they'll grow. God will unfold the next step in their life. Listen to your pastor. The more you obey what you know to be true, the easier it will be to find what you don't know. And the person who's constantly wrangling and wondering what God's plan is for his life, typically not always, unless they're just a brand new Christian, but typically they're telling on themselves they're really saying, I'm not doing the will of God that I know I should do. So when you begin doing what you know, God will show you what you don't know. He'll show you the next step. And by the way, the will of God is something that's delightful. It is satisfying. Jesus can make this statement concerning the will of God in John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It, it, it delighted him. It got him up in the morning. It put him to sleep at night. It was the steepest satisfaction of his heart, and it should be yours and mine as well. Now, you can step out of that will. Jonah did that. Go to Nineveh. What does he do? He goes in the opposite way. He becomes the prodigal prophet. And so God has to discipline him because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So he sends one of his submarines on location, swallows them up. He spends three days and three nights. That becomes, among other things, a, a picture three days and three nights on that foam blubber mattress. And he comes to grips with his disobedience. The fish spits him out, and he preaches to Nineveh, and the greatest revival in the history of the world happens. Now, there's a bigger revival that's coming the single biggest, greatest revival will happen during the tribulation period to people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. But he sees approximately 600,000 people converted. But that preaching prophet didn't do it from the heart. Because when you meet him in that fourth chapter, he's the pouting prophet. He's sucking his thumb, woe is me, under that plant. But by the way, he made it. You say, how do you know? Because he wrote the book of Jonah. God didn't use some disobedient Christian to give us the book of Jonah. But my point is, is that God wants you to do it from the heart. Paul speaks of that to the Corinthians. Some of them had a problem with giving, like some of you. He said, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not grudgingly, it's a word that means reluctantly, painfully, and not under compulsion, meaning of necessity, but you should do it because you want to do it. God loves a cheerful, it's the Greek word hilarion, we get our word hilarious from it. I want to tell you this morning that the will of God will enrich your life. It will satisfy your life. It will bring depths of joy to your innermost person when you're walking with the Lord. And so James is describing such a person here in verse 15. He prayerfully approaches God's will and plan for his life. Why? Because he understands you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. Then in verse 16, he adds, notice, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
And all such boasting is evil. Anything short of obedience is arrogance. In essence, he's saying, God, I know what I should do, but I've got my agenda. And I'm going to do what I want to do. Again, he's writing to believers who are out of fellowship with the Lord. The word boast means to to speak loudly, to, to promote oneself. He's a braggart of sorts. He's not really God-centered and Christ-centered. He's self-centered. And all such boasting is evil. Remember, he's using the illustration of the businessman. And he uses the word arrogance. And the word arrogance is used in Koine Greek of a vagabond who goes around making all kinds of boasts, working people, that he's really a big shot when he's not. And and James uses this word picture because that's what this rich businessman is doing. He's boasting, he's arrogant, he thinks thinks he's better than the rest of the people. The fact is, is he's wasting his life. So verse 13 shows that they were not giving the credit to the Lord for their business. He, He was boasting in himself, and all such boasting is evil. You know, I can't read this passage of Scripture without my mind going to Luke chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me to Luke chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, the first book is Matthew, Mark. The third book in the New Testament is Luke. Go to Luke chapter 12. This boasting was presumptuous. It was evil. It was arrogance. And we have an illustration of such a person here in a parable that Jesus tells. We often frame this as the parable of the rich farmer. Luke chapter 12, and let's pick it up in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here is this farmer who's extremely skilled and extremely blessed. And his problem is, is he has tremendous success. He has a bumper crop, and it's so large he doesn't have a place to store all the crops, and it's a concern for him. So he makes a rather bold decision. Instead of adding on to the current building, he tears them down. He builds larger barns in which to store all of his goods. He has these visions of plenty in his mind instead of visions of the Lord and visions of sharing. In many ways, he's like the typical American who's living for retirement. They want to get a good job so they can make a lot of money so that they can retire at such and such an age. I met a guy recently. He told me when he was going to retire, he had the months ticked off. Well, let me just say, there's nothing necessarily wrong with retirement. Many times your company will ask you to leave, or maybe your body or your mind just can't keep up with the demands of the profession that you're in. 
But I think you know if you are a Christian that retirement is not really a biblical principle, that at best all retirement is is a change of job description. And sadly, there are many people who retire so they can sit back, take their ease, they move to Florida, and they play shuffleboard. Huh, what a waste. 35 years ago, Audrey and I lost a choice friend. We were a newly married couple, and we were blessed to meet Roland Walker. He had one of the largest construction companies in all of Virginia. And he gave away millions of dollars to the cause of Christ. And I went to visit him in the hospital. He had had a heart attack and triple bypass surgery in the early days of bypass. And I said, Roland, I said, what are your plans right now? And he began to articulate the plans for the next five years that he had. I loved his attitude. And he was thinking in terms of the kingdom of God and the difference that he could make for God's people. But think about this guy. He he doesn't have a healthy vapor theology. He's got a crummy theology. Number one, he mistakes time for eternity. Look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Circle that word many. Many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be many. Dying hadn't really entered his mind. He had these unlimited horizons that this was just going to go on forever. Many goods laid up for many years to come, and the day he retires, he dies. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Not only did he presume on the future, but he also confuses the physical with the spiritual. He refers to his body as his soul. Again, I will say to my soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He thought he had taken good care of his soul, but he'd actually totally ignored it. God said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. He's like many lost people. They're religious, but it's not a religion based on the Scripture. I called one of those councilmen. In fact, I called all of them and called another one this week and got a live message, I mean, a live person. And I said to him, now, what you're doing is you're not really opposing me. He, 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 was, he was ragging on me. I said, look, you, you're not opposing me. You're opposing God Almighty. You're opposing what God's Word says because God's Word says that transgenderism and and homosexuality and lesbianism are offensive to Him. Not my God. I said, well, you've created a God in your liking, not the God according to Holy Scripture. So here's a guy, he is religious, soul, you've got many goods laid up for many years to come. He's not really asking, God, what would you have me to do with my life? How would you have me to invest it? And so he's immediately confronted with eternity. He was rich in this world, but he was bankrupt for all of eternity. He mistook time for eternity. He mistook his body for his soul, third He mistook what was God's for his own. Look at verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man's priorities, they're all out of whack. 
He paid his bills, he met his needs, he padded his retirement account, but he leaves God entirely out of the picture. He was never rich towards God. It's a biblical idiom that really describes the direction of a person's life. You want to find out what a person's life is? Look at his wallet. Everything he kept, he kept for himself. That's why God says in the first day of every week, we come and bring a portion of what he increases. It's not a 90-10% relationship. It's 100% God's. Someday I'll give an account for all 100%. But the tithe is a reminder that God owns it all. So here's a classic unbeliever who measures his success in the physical realm and not in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In God's eyes, a man's life is not measured by what you own, but who you are. But we say, oh, he's successful. I mean, look at what he's got. And he may be a successful failure. And so Jesus wants to apply this lifestyle of the unbeliever to the saints. Look at verse 22. For this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Christ does not want his disciples, and by extension, none of us here today who are born again to have a, a bad view of life. He wants us to have a good vapor theology. And so he says in verse 31, but seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Please listen to your pastor. You only have a little slice of time to make a mark in this life. If you're going to tithe, do it now. Oh, when I get all my debts paid off, I'll start tithing. You'll never tithe. If you're going to share the gospel with that friend or that relative, do it now. I've been in more funeral homes over more caskets with crying people telling me, I just wish I had been more bold sharing the gospel with this person. And now it's too late. If you're going to build into the life of your grandchild, do it now. If you're going to find a place to serve in the local church, do it now. If you're going to express some act of kindness, do it now. If you're going to make your mark for Jesus Christ, don't wait to tomorrow because time will run out on you. Now, I want you to notice how he concludes the chapter. Beyond the foolishness of ignoring God's will and the wisdom of obeying God's will, he closes here in verse 17 with the sin of denying God's will, with the sin of denying God's will. Look now, if you will, at verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, you know if you are a careful reader of Scripture, Whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is the word therefore, therefore? In other words, how does verse 17 fit into the entire context concerning the will of God? And by the way, uh, this is a verse that is often used to describe the difference between sins of commission and sins of omission, and legitimately so. It's a fair application. Sins of commission is when you do something specifically that you are told that you shouldn't do. And sins of omission is when you know what the will of God is and you don't do it. 
Some people take a sense of pride in that they're not doing A, B, C, and D, but neither are they doing E, F, and G. And very often it is the sins of omission, of failure to do that which we ought to do, that ends up leading us into things that we shouldn't do. Why? Because you're out of fellowship. Now, contextually, there are two key principles that the therefore wants us to consider. First, in the context, the therefore reminds us that if we've uh, been, if we've surrendered our will, our plans to the will of God, then we're not living in sin. But if we haven't, to the one who knows the right thing to do and just plain on doesn't do it, it's not, oh, a judgment of error. It's not an unfortunate mistake. It's sin. In other words, we are to live in such a way that we are living in dependence upon the Lord. We are seeking God. We're not just asking Him to bless our plans. We're asking Him to reveal His plans and for us to use them in a way that would please Him. James is saying, here is the principle. If you choose not to do what God has asked you to do, then you're living in sin. And if you're not dedicating your way to him, if you're just presuming on the future that you can say, this is my life and I'm gonna do as I see fit and not really consult God, then that's sin. The one who knows the right thing and does it not, to him it is sin. He's living like a practical atheist. Again, God's not against planning. He's against plans made without him. Let me bring this in for landing very quickly. Let me make three applications as we close this morning. It's pregnant with application all the way through, but let me highlight at least three. Number one, knowing the future, God in his mercy reveals one day at a time. Because God knows the future and his mercy and his grace, he reveals one day at a time. If we could anticipate the future, if we could figure out every potential contingency, number one, we'd be proud and independent and we wouldn't need the Lord. So God makes us who are finite, dependent on Him, the infinite. We have to humbly depend on Him. Not to mention it's really an expression of His grace. If we knew the future, a lot of us, we wouldn't want it. If God said, 10 years from now, this is what I have for you, you ooh, no, it can't be. But you see, if you have 10 years of spiritual growth and maturity, you'll be ready for that. Or if there's some trial that God shows you that's coming on your life six months from now, oh, no, 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 no. You couldn't sleep at night. So many times it's in the mercy of God, the way he unfolds his will for us. In Psalm 103, it says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. God knows precisely what we can handle, and that's why he unfolds it the way he does. He has us deal with disappointment, and he has us deal with blessing one day at a time. And that's why Jesus can tell us in Matthew 6, 34, right after he says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all your needs will be added. Then he says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's actually a, an idiom. Sufficient is the evil unto the day thereof is the way the old English renders it. But that doesn't make much sense to us. But the thought behind it is, is every day has enough challenges of it its own. 
and God will give us the grace to face each day. So God in his mercy reveals one day at a time to us. And that's why we need to depend upon him each and every day and not presume on the future. Secondly, overconfidence about your future will lead potentially to neglect of your responsibilities today. You see, if you believe that you have the future in your hands, that next year you're going to make a profit, everything's going to work out very nicely, then you might neglect some of your God-given responsibilities today. If you're thinking that you can serve God when you get around to it, because you have control of the future, then you may miss God's plan and God's best for your life. Think about the father who's supposed to be the spiritual leader, the shepherd of his home. He says, well, you know, we'll start giving to the work of the Lord when we get out of debt. Or think about the person who says, well, you know, I'll come to church when, when it somehow works out on my schedule. I was going out of a restaurant, and I asked the gentleman, I said, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? Just being friendly. And we engaged in conversation. He said, no, I don't. I said, well, I'd love to invite you to the church I go to. He didn't know I was the pastor. He gave him a little invitational card. And he said, Sunday is my only day off. It's the only day I can rest. I said, well, actually, that's what the Bible says it's supposed to be. In six days, you're to do your work. And God gives us one day to rest, and part of that rest is spiritual replenishment. And he claimed to be a believer. And I'm not saying that he wasn't, but he was certainly, if he was, a, a disobedient believer. And so if you're thinking, well, I can come to church and serve God when I want to, when it's important to me, all such boasting is arrogance. It's evil. Oh, you know, I'm going to start having devotionals with my family and teaching my sons and daughters the Scriptures. You know, we'll, we'll get down on a one-on-one, -on -one and I'll get into their lives and ask them how they're doing. And, hey, let's look at this passage together, son, how it relates to life. And I'll do it someday. All of a sudden, your kids are grown and gone. Your kids become teenagers, and they begin to run this show. I have people leave this church on occasion. Why'd you leave? Well, my teenage son or daughter wanted to go to such and such a church. Oh, they're in charge? Well, their friends are over there. That's how you make the decision? Tomorrow can always be out there. And the days turn into decades before you know it, your life is gone. You see, sin can be so subtle, and he is addressing sin in a, in a first century assembly of believers. It's not that this guy had a girlfriend in another city and he was going to plan to commit adultery with her. It's not like he was getting drunk. It's not like he was dishonest in his business dealings. He was just arrogant. He was boastful. He was living his life without the Lord. And when you do that long enough, you begin to cauterize your soul. You become insensitive to the things of God. Third and finally, I'm reminded, if you're not a Christian, and don't slam your Bibles and fold your pages and distract people who need to hear this. If you're not a Christian, overconfidence about your future can cause you to neglect your need today, your need to receive Christ. 
If you're not a Christian, if you've never been saved, if you don't have the assurance that in the next 10 seconds, if the trumpet of God were to sound or if you were to drop dead in that seat, that heaven is absolutely your home, then you need to listen carefully. Years ago, we used to use, I don't see it anymore, a little business-sized card, and it would be a track that Christians would often share. But that was back in the 70s when Christians shared their faith. People don't share their faith anymore. We wonder why America's going down the tubes. Because Christians are distracted, cold, lukewarm, apathetic, and they're no longer sharing the gospel, much less even just trying to invite someone to church. But we used to pass out these little cards, and on one side it said, what must I do to be saved? And then right below it it said, Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You flipped it over, and the question was, what must I do to be lost? And it had one word underneath it, nothing. Just do nothing. Do absolutely nothing, and you'll be lost because Jesus said the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged or condemned already. It's already written across the forehead. Condemned, guilty. We're on the broad road that is leading to destruction. And if you do absolutely nothing, that's where you will spend an eternity. And that's what James is underscoring. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does it not to him, it is sin. God wants you to be saved today. You say, well, I know that's something I need to do. I'm still thinking about it. I'll do it someday. And James would just say, all such boasting is evil. George W. Troot was once the great pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. He served there from 1897 to 1944 for 47 years. The pastor that followed him served for 50 years. They had virtually two pastors in a 100-year history. And he was a great pastor who taught the Scripture, but among other things, he had a passion to win people to Christ. And there was a revival that was going on in his hometown of Hayesville, North Carolina. He was just 18 years old, and he was trying to win his childhood friend to Christ, and he had witnessed to him on several occasions, but without success. And he thought, well, maybe this revival preacher, he's powerful, God is using him, people are finding Christ. Maybe he would listen to him. So he asked his teenage friend, hey, why don't you come to the revival with me tonight? He said, well, not now, George, maybe later. Now, remember, this was a day when revivals weren't a week. They were two weeks, sometimes three weeks long, sometimes even longer. And over the course of the next few weeks, that pastor preached every night, and every night people were finding Christ. And he asked them day after day, hey, why don't you come tonight? Not now, George. Maybe later. And then he went, and he was so moved by the sermon, he says, he's got to hear him. So we went by his house, because there was only a couple days left, and he went to see his friend, and he said, hey, is Robert home? His mother answered the door. He's home, but he can't see you. He's fallen sick, and he's in bed. George, why don't you come by tomorrow, and maybe you can see Robert then. So he came by the next day, and the mother answered the door. She had been crying, and she said, Robert, the doctors say that he is gravely ill, 
and he does not have long to live, and that if you want to see him, you must see him now. So he went in, and he saw his dear friend whom he loved and cared for and played with, and his friend was trying to say something to him. And he got down, but he couldn't hear him. And finally, he, he put his ear right next to his mouth. And his friend said, not now, George. Later. And with that, he died. Those were his last words. And true, it said, as long as there is a breath within me, I will plead with men and women and boys and girls to come and find Jesus Christ because you are but a vapor. You appear for a moment and then your life is gone. Today, if you hear his voice, the message of salvation, the Bible warns, do not harden your heart. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation because none of us have the promise of tomorrow. Listen to me. If you are here today and you're not saved, the Spirit of God will not strive with you forever. There will come a point where you've said no so many times to the Spirit of God. The seed will be snatched that you may not believe and be saved, and you will never be able to say yes. You say you're scaring me. No, I'm just telling you what the Scripture says. Now, if you know Christ, how are you investing your vapor? You say, well, you know, I'm in my 60s and I've kind of blown it. I've come, look, I don't care if you're 70 years old. Today can be the first day of the rest of your life. And you can go forward from this day on. Remember the parable of the workmen, the guy who came in at four, and they all collected their money at five? And the guy who got in the in the gig late, God gave him a great reward because in the last hour of his life, he was faithful. And you and I can be faithful as well. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your incredible grace. Thank you for this portion of Scripture that you've given us. And I pray today for someone who is here who's been putting off coming to Christ. Help them to do that which is right and pleasing to you. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Help someone today, Father, in the quietness of their heart to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me, I will openly, publicly confess you before men. Father, help some other Christian, whether here on one of our campuses who have already done that, but they need a New Testament home where they can grow and serve with other believers. Help them to come today. Some just need to take that first step and confess Christ openly and to be baptized in obedience to your word. Whatever their decision, by the Spirit of God, give them the grace to do that which would be pleasing to you, that they'll be glad they did when they meet you in heaven. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.